This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We honour their histories, cultures and traditions of storytelling. Hello and welcome to Plated Three Food Memories. I am your host, Savas Savas. For 25 years, my catering company, Plated, has contributed food experiences to some of Australia's premier events and intimate gatherings. During this time, I've observed the relationships people have with food and devoured thousands of conversations around it. I believe that every memory can be pinned to a food experience and every food experience can trigger a memory. Food memories shape who we are and remind us where we have come from. One of my early food memories is eating a banana paddle pop on the miniature train at Bronte Beach in Sydney. Join me as we move the fork around my guest three food memories to reveal what their memories tell us about them and motivates them to make our world a better place. Each guest will share a social cause close to their heart at the end of the episode. Andrew Webster is the chief sports writer for the Sydney Morning Herald and an author, and who, like me, is a homosexual male. (laughs) Allegedly. Allegedly. Webby has written about sport for more than 25 years, covering the Summer and Winter Olympic Games, as well as World Cups around the world. Webby skips and sings through his articles, throwing daisies and glitter, just like Poppy in the DreamWorks film Trolls. His reporting is balletic and ballistic, kind and adorable. Being an openly gay sports writer has exposed Webby to some of the poorest examples of human behaviour. Most turn their back on nasty homophobia and pretend it didn't happen. I preferred to call it out, said our Webby, but more on that later. Webby, welcome to Three Food Memories. Oh, thanks for having me, Sav. Now, Webby, I... It's strange. This is really strange. Because I... Well, I'm usually interviewing. Webby, look, the sports bug skipped me completely. I got the, I got the wham-bub... The jitterbug. Sports is very important to you. It's part of your marrow. It's part of who you are. When did this happen? When did this come into play? From a very young age, I would say. I grew up on the north coast of New South Wales, a little town called Yurunga, just south of Coffs Harbour. And sport was everything. Footy was everything. Watching footy was everything. But from a really young age, I was never particularly good at it. No, sorry, let me correct that. I was really bad at it, but I just loved sport. I loved getting up in the middle of the night and watching Wimbledon finals and Rugby Union World Cups, and I just inhaled it. And then from a very young age, I also loved the written word. I loved writing. My late nan, God love her, she always, she devoured books on a weekly basis and then she'd give it to me. Now, I don't think... You know, seven-year-old kids should have been reading Stephen King novels. But I fell in love with the written word from a young age because of her. And then I started reading the newspaper from an early age. So I knew from about the age of 10 that I wanted to combine the two things I'm most passionate about, sport and writing, and do them for a living. So it's sort of this job chose me, really. Um, Are there any other family members who play sport? My dad was a a red-hot surfer. But the rest of us, no. We just played, you know, at school or 
or on the weekends, but never at any, any sort of huge level. But I really loved watching footy. Rugby league was my thing. I was a devout Dragons fan from the earliest of ages. So I know nothing about St. George. St. George. Who announced St. George Illawar. Red and, red, and, red and white. Red and blue. Red and blue is Canterbury? No, red, red, white and blue are the roosters. Canterbury are blue and white. St. George and Laura are red and white. Right, okay. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so how bad I am, everyone? <laughs> really shocking. All right, let's talk a little bit about, you know, male sports players. They're not known for their good choices. Has this always been the case? Um, yes. It's always been the case. The difference now is that there's a thing called social media. There's a thing called mobile phones with cameras on them. And there's no longer that demarcation between what happens off the field and on the field. For that reason, because the media and the coverage of professional sports becomes so big that if you err off the field, it's going to be publicised. It's going to be written about. I've... Couldn't tell you how many times I've heard former players in all different types of sports say to me, thank Christ we don't play now because we would we would have been sacked long ago. What are the codes doing about it? Oh, they're trying to bring it into line. There's only... See, look, I've got a bit of a, a different feeling on this. Like, I, I don't think... You know, we expect young sports people to be remarkable athletes. I don't think we should expect them to be remarkable people as well. Now, there's a bit of a line there when, it, when you're talking about the treatment of women, some serious crimes around that. But if, uh, if, a, if a player gets busted doing a line of coke, I'm not going to sit there and pass judgment on them, really. You know, not when half of the eastern suburbs are doing it every Friday, Saturday night as it is. Look, they're, they're bound by laws and, and rules that the rest of us aren't in many ways. But, 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 so, but that's not to say that it should be a free-for-all and they should do whatever they want. But I just think, I, think, I think some of the moral indignation that people put onto sports people, particularly footballers, particularly rugby league players, most of whom come from a very low socioeconomic background who have come from really, really tough beginnings. You know, sometimes you are what you are and sometimes things are gonna, you're going to make a mistake. Righto, Webby, ready to plough your fist into our first food memory? So my first memory relates to the time I was in Rio de Janeiro for the 2014 FIFA World Cup. So I've been very lucky in my job to cover sports all around the world and big events all around the world. So the FIFA World Cup was held in Brazil in 2014, which is a huge thing because football is basically the religion of Brazil. It's almost the most important thing in that country. Apart from family, they just they, they are besotted with football. Everywhere you go, I've been to Brazil three times, and everywhere you go, it's all football, basically, on the beaches of Copacabana, in the slums of São Paulo, to wherever you go. It's just a, a national obsession. And when I was there covering the World Cup in 14, I spent a lot of time in Rio, and I really wanted to get off the beaten track and write about the perspective of the World Cup from those that were in the favelas. Now, the favelas of people I know are like the, the slums and the poor areas in Rio de Janeiro in particular. So I organised through an aid worker who came through, an Irish guy who lived in Sydney for a long time and was now working in Rio, and I organised through him to visit a favela one night during the World Cup. And we went to, it was Vasca da Gama was the name of the, the favela that we went to, one of the biggest in, in Rio. It was about 20 minutes walk from the Maracanã. Now, the Maracanã is the spiritual home of Brazilian football. So this amazing ground. But it also had, in the lead-up to the World Cup, 
had undergone a $500 million refurbishment as part of a $12 billion spend from the Brazilian government, the corrupt Brazilian government, on facilities for the World Cup. Now, Brazil's a very poor country, and it's getting poorer and poorer and poorer by the year as the government becomes more and more corrupt. So I wanted to see what the people who love football think about the World Cup, which has just spent so much money on hosting the world when they have basic services that aren't there. So the favelas, my experience of the favelas when I was in Rio is they spread over the mountains like a cancer and they grow in front of your eyes. Mm. And it's just shanty town after shanty town after shanty town. What do they feel like? It's... But there's got a well. It's like any slum, really. It's lacking basic services like electricity and water, or they're very unreliable. But this incredible sense of community and togetherness. And when I went there one night, it was remarkable. There was this Brazilian guy that told me, and I wrote I wrote the story for the for the Herald at the time, and they we did the story through the eyes of this seven year old kid who had these unbelievable football skills for a seven year old. But his father was a drug dealer and he's out on the streets at three in the morning. And there was this sort of palpable anger towards the Brazilian government for the amount of money that they had spent had spent on the World Cup just to host the world. Anyway, so I went and did that story and it was it was an amazing amazing experience just to just to and talk to the old guys there and talk to the locals there and see that, you know, the the hope in the kids faces and how everything just revolved around playing football even at three in the morning so where it gets back to my first food experience is that so three or four days later they were playing a match at the the maracana down the road and i got invited back just to just as a guest not for a story just to go and and talk to the locals and enjoy it and then go to there was a match down the road that we're going to go to down the track so apart from drinking a hell of a lot of beer (laughs) cold skull it was beautiful. They had the churrasco, like the traditional Brazilian churrasco with all these meats on the skewers that were cooked over this fire, over these hot coals. And, you know, you, ha- you go to a churrasco here in Sydney and it's and it's all very well organised and costs a fortune, but this was something else. This was so beautiful. What were the meats they had on the churrasco? Like chicken, beef lamb and the smell and the smell just had a real richness to it that you don't get from you don't get here now i like a good meat and i like a good south american meat so i've been to buenos aires many times and i've gone to all the really expensive steakhouses there and you know eaten big slabs of meat and liters of malbec but whenever i drive past a churrasco here there's always one down in Coogee that i used to go to all the time it was but this when i think of a, a churrasco now and when I ever think, when I ever see meat cooking on a skewer, I think about that time. It wasn't even so much the, the food, but just how, how much they welcomed me in, how almost none of them spoke English. I had very, very limited Portuguese, but just by sharing food and a drink and through just through body language, we communicated for three or four hours with these people. And also, thank God for Google Translate. <laughs> <laughs> it was unbelievable. And I was like, I, I look back at it as one of the happiest moments of my career, to be perfectly honest. And then at the end of it, we all packed up and walked to the Maracanã and watched football. And they were sitting up in the nosebleed seats, which cost a ridiculous amount of money. But they used to, these old men used to go to for, am I allowed to swear? Three fifths of fuck all back in the day. But now they were paying 250 US to, to go there. And I'm here with my 
uh, media lanyard around my neck sitting in the pristine seats. But just that moment there was one of the highlights of my career, certainly my World Cup. It It always surprises me that those with less will give you more and those with more... Don't give. They were the happiest, exactly, and they were the, they were the happiest people in the world and they had nothing. And did you just find yourself just holding your plate and your fork and just watching and it consuming the food and not knowing where to look and what to do That's and what exactly to say? That's exactly what it was like, yeah. Well, you just but no, but, 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 you, but so when I, work, when I was in that favela a few days earlier, I remember walking in there and here I am, like this bald white guy with a backpack on, and all these eyes are looking at you. <laughs> did you ever feel? Did you ever not feel safe? You should, you should only ever go into a favela if you're invited. They said to meet at this bar, this sort of little bar on a corner in the favela, and that's where I went. There was these old men sitting there watching, and I was sort of waving. And Australia was actually playing. The Socceroos were playing, and I said, "Oh, Australiano!" And as soon as you, you I always find that goes a long way in South America, particularly Brazil. You say you're from Australia. I love it. I guess it's it's very much like their culture, I mean, that beach culture, that even the environment, the physical landscape, you know, around the beaches. And it's a is, poor is, country. Yeah. It really is. The first time I went to Brazil was 2004 for a story. I was freelancing and then I stayed and travelled around Brazil for three months, which I loved, including New Year's Eve on Copacabana Beach, the details of which I should never talk publicly about. He's told me about them. <laughs> I know about them. <laughs> And you will never find anyway, out about them because no, I am but, a vault. <laughs> <laughs> abort, abort. Um, but from then, from 04, the last, then it was 10 years between then and when I went and covered the World Cup, and the change in the economy was, just, was sad. It was really sad. Just the poverty and the crime. That said, everyone talks about the crime in Brazil. I have never, ever had a single worry in the world, and I've been there three times. I went two years after the World Cup for the Olympics in 2016, I could see just how much poorer things had become then. And I think off the back of what happened at the World Cup and how much it cost, like 12 billion US dollars is a lot of money for a country that's struggling economically or whose people are struggling. And then to have another expensive Olympics two years later, yeah, it's just it's sad. So there's a special place in your heart when it when you think of Brazil? I do, very much so, for many, many reasons. <laughs> Moving on to your next memory, Webby. Number two. Number two. So this one's really simple. This is eating king prawns with my father down at, down at the wharf in Coffs Harbour after working with him as a bricklayer earlier in the day. So this was really significant. Whenever I eat king prawns, I always think about this memory almost every single time because my dad was... God, I'm getting emotional just talking about it already. So my dad is a bricklayer from the North Coast. Everyone in my family is a bricklayer. Um, so what, really, what did they think when you didn't lay bricks? And Well, this is important. This is, this is why I didn't lay bricks because... And I know, I know this now because my father, from a young age made me come and work with him and work as a brickies labourer and I hated it. I'd always, you know, it's tough. And I remember trying as a as a eight-year-old picking up big <clears throat> big barrows of bricks and falling over with them and trying to mix mud and him abusing me and my hands all cut up and it, yeah, it was just an absolute ball like <laughs> of a job. Um were there brothers in your family? I've got two younger sisters. And I, they're not bricklayers. No, no 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 they're not. They're not. Um but I <clears throat> learned very early 
that my dad didn't want me to be a bricklayer. He wanted me to go get an education and do something that I love for a living, unlike him. Even though he loves bricklaying and he loves building things and there's, it's a really hard life. It's a hard job on your body and your mind and construction's hard. Trade, trade, being a trade is hard. So early on there, like I remember we were young, <clears throat> when I, sorry, when I was young and I'd, and my dad was young too. My parents had me when they were really young. They were in their, they were late teens. Um, but we'd, I'd work on a Saturday, Saturday morning with dad and then we'd finish and we'd get in these Toyota Land Cruise and we'd go to the fish co-op at, in Coffs Harbour and we'd get um, a kilo of king prawns and sit there and eat these massive, big, juicy king prawns on the wharf and throw their heads into the... Into the water. You'd have the the paper bag yeah. full of the prawns. Yeah. Take the head off, peel the body shell. Yeah. Tail. Take out the poo line. Take out the poo. Oh, I actually keep the poo line. Oh, yuck! Yeah, it's too crunchy. <laughs> I don't think about it. But they, I just don't want to waste were, the bag. And this was. <laughs> yes, take it. <laughs> you think you know somebody? You think you know somebody? It's why would you waste? Because all that it's beautiful- full of. Poo. Uh, uh. <laughs> Prawn poo. <laughs> it's very gritty. It, I don't mind the Surely gritty. all the restaurateurs and foodies out there that they are hearing you. Do. Like, they well, well, they pull them out, actually. They kind of hold the, the tail, the prawn tail, and then they kind of pull it out with some sort of skewer or business. I mean, I do it for work, of course, but I just, if I'm peeling a prawn and I've gone to all that effort. If it's a big king prawn, though, that's it's a big gritty line. Oh, it's part of the fun. It's part of the fun. And I actually I actually even eat prawn heads too. So I could actually eat the whole prawn if you let me go. Anyway, it's actually your food memory. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, my God. <laughs> You've just ruined my, my food memory. <laughs> anyway, so I've been addicted to prawns ever since, prawns and oysters, um, like most people who live in Australia. But uh, So every time I eat king prawns, I think of that particular memory with my dad. And our, our, our relationship became very tight from a young age, but mostly through, through that, you know. And, but, but, but at the same time of, of us bonding after a hard day of work, he was also teaching me the lesson to, to study, to do what I, wanted, what I love for a living. So I, it sort of it drilled into me the importance of identifying what I wanted to do. And I was very lucky. I know a lot of people go halfway through their life and not knowing what they want to do. But I knew from the age of 10, I did, you know. I mean, I whinge like most journalists about what we do and sometimes I think none of this is important and who cares. I do love it. When you um, when you reflect back on the memory of eating your pr- the prawns and the oysters with your dad on the wharf, do you have any recollections of the conversation that you, he would have with you? No, not really. Was there conversation? Yeah, there was always. Yeah, for sure. My dad always taught me some really. I can't remember any specific conversation, but we, but just through osmosis, I suppose I've always learnt. My dad's got a really strong moral code about a real strong sense of what's right and wrong. Um, you know, he there was a lot of life lessons that I didn't learn from him because he didn't know them himself and he was learning them as he as he went along. Um, he probably still hasn't learnt a lot of things. But he he and my mother always gave us a really strong sense of what was right and what was wrong, to never <clears throat> let anyone walk over the top of you, to always do the right thing by, you know, by, by a friend, by a family member. Um, but, yeah, just that sense of... Of, and, and, and helping your fellow man. I know that all sounds really wanky, but they were really, really big on that type of stuff. Um, and I always, 
yeah, I always I always walked away from always grew up knowing that that stuff was important. So when did you come out to your dad? So like most gay men, coming out to your father is probably the most significant part of your life, you know? It was always a big thing. How for old me. were you? I was twenty six when I came out. I came out to my little sister. My little sister who went who was at uni and went because it was such a big thing for me. I was all over the shop. I had, I, I, um, was so. This is around two thousand. I was a real mess. I was, um, I'd sort of finally come out to myself, and I would just immerse myself in alcohol and drugs and the gay scene, and was just trying to fit in. and And I was twenty six. I was twenty six. Were there part of your life that you were out in, and then the others that Not you at weren't? All. So Not you at were all. just kind of finding my way. And then I remembered, like, I was off the rails <clears throat> completely and I, I had to tell someone. So I told my sister because she was young and she said, oh, really? Oh, she, she, I, think we're, I think we're all bisexual. Can you get me big day out tickets? <laughs> <laughs> so that was my little sister in uni. And then I told my mum and my mum was, she was fine but was, was really emotional about it. Um, and then I told my other sister, who's just a year or two younger than me, and, yeah, again, was emotional about it. And the last person was my dad, who um, – and he was working in Sydney at the time and and he turned up – God, I'm going I'm to cry saying this story. And I was, I was a complete mess one time. And I called him. I said, I'm in a bad way. And he said – he, he just said, I'll be there straight away. Just turned up. Do you think he had an idea? Yeah, I do, for yeah. sure. And it, he walked He walked through the door and I burst into tears and, I, and he said, what is it, what is it? And I said, Dad, I'm gay. And he went, really? Is that it? And I said, yeah. I said, He said, that's why you've been so messy the last couple of years? And I said, yeah, yeah, that's it. And he said, mate, I don't love you because you're gay. I love you because you're my son. Mm. <laughs> and he gave me a big hug. He gave me a big hug and... He said, have you got any beer in the fridge? I said, only Corona. He said, that'll do. <laughs> and I went, do you, want, do you want it with the lime? He said, no. <laughs> and he, and we've been, you know, my dad and I have been up and down obviously since, but we've had, you know, that was such a watershed, that's watershed moment of my life really. All the way up until um, a few years ago where the NRL, the National Rugby League had a float at Mardi Gras, and I've ne- had never felt the need to do Mardi Gras and be part of Mardi to Gras. be be part of my. I never sorry. Let me correct that. I never felt a need to march at Mardi Gras. I understood why people did it. For me, I just didn't feel like it was a, a rite of passage that I that I needed. And anyway, the NRL had a had a float, and I interviewed Ian Roberts for it. And he was unsure about whether to do it or not, because he'd sort of been ostracised by the NRL community or from by by the the head office for a long time. He'd sort of been forgotten by why, by why? the people that run the game. Laziness. <clears throat> it's not not through homophobia. I think I just think through laziness. That's just very. It's just the dysfunction of rugby league. And he said he was going to do it, and I went. And he said, "Are you going to do it?" And I went. I said, "You know what? I will. I will." And then I thought about it and I thought, I'm going to ask my dad to do it with me. And my dad is so self-conscious, particularly in a big crowd and 
So what could be <laughs> so being on the back of a of a float, back of an NRL float going up Oxford Street with hundreds of thousands of people looking at you probably wasn't the place for a self-conscious straight bricklayer to be. But I remember I called him and I said, Dad, I'm going to do I'm going to do uh, I'm going to be on the NRL float for Mardi Gras, and he said, I'll do it. And you didn't you didn't have to ask and him. He said, and I knew how hard it was going to be for him, but he did it for me. You know, he did it for me. And I remember, <clears throat> do you want to talk, that, so that night, that night, <clears throat> um, and there's this, we all caught up at the pub, at a pub beforehand, and uh, there's, a, there's a photo of, the, of me, Dad and Ian together, um, and then we got on the float, and we, Dad and I were just supposed to be walking at the back, and one of the organisers said, no, 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 you get up on the back, you get on the float. So you were meant to be walking at the back, back of the... Back of the float, not, not on the back of the truck with the... So, so here we are on the back of the float, and there's Ian Roberts, my dad, me, and Wendell Saylor on a podium thrusting his enormous crutch in my father's face <laughs> 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 as we go up Oxford Street. And waving and honestly, like, I mean, holy fuck, even just thinking about it now, like it was. What was the song? Oh, it was Let Me Entertain You by Robbie Williams. <laughs> that was one of them. That was one. And then they had these cheerleaders at the back. And, and how were the crowds responding to you as you drove they were, through? They were seeing Ian and stopping there and applauding. They weren't, it wasn't like cheering, but it was this sort of, this respectful applause for Ian Roberts. When did he stop playing the game? Oh, late 90s, early 2000s. And what it, what was it like for Ian when he came out? Why did he come out and what was it like? Because he couldn't, like all of us, you, can't, you can only live a lie so long, you know? And do you think the, 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 the sports community was ready for him to come out? No. For anyone to come out? No, no. And this is the thing that I always find remarkable about Ian, who I've got to know over the years. He's a great man. Um, is that he came out in the 90s, in the mid mid to late 90s, and that nobody really in, in Australian professional sport really followed until recently or until they retired. And I don't, he never came out to profit from his sexuality, which I know other athletes have without naming names, but um, he did it because he just couldn't live the lie any longer. And as he always says, because... And I've been on panels with him and I've interviewed him about it. There are kids dying in the suburbs because of it, because they can't, haven't come to terms with who they They're are. They're killing themselves. They're killing themselves, you know. And, and he thought there was a, a greater cause and still does. So being honest with himself was much bigger than him playing the game. He needed to, he needed to speak his truth. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But the funniest part of that entire night came the next it came on the Monday. No, the Sunday. On the Sunday. So um <laughs> my on the Monday morning. So we finished the we get off. Ian was Ian, I don't know if he still works as a baggage handler at Qantas. Like he just loves honest work. So he got off, went home, made a shower, went went to work. Dad and I went to a pub, had a couple of beers, went our separate ways. I was on the footy show on Channel Nine the next day, so I couldn't go to the after party. Um, and Dad, <laughs> Dad went to work on the Monday on the job site, and he walked in, and and <laughs> some of his co-workers said, "Big weekend, Dick." My dad, my dad's name's Richard Dick. He said, "Well, yeah, why?" He said, "Oh, 
saw you on the saw you on the float at uh, Mardi Gras. So on all the coverage the next day and all the news bulletins, where they had gone around the corner from Oxford Street onto Flinders Street is where where the where the coverage is. The camera had focused on Ian Roberts and my father. So all these people thought <laughs> my old man was Ian Roberts' boyfriend. Boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> and how does Dad reflect? Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. How does Dad reflect um, back on that memory of, of, of marching in the in the parade? He loved it. It's a, give he's him really peace. proud. I was really proud of him. You know, he's never been. There's never been any drama at all with my dad and my sexuality. Nor should there be. But. You know, I just he comes from a different generation and, and 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 from a small town on the north coast where I came from, and it was attitudes were tricky. But I've had stories come back about my dad and not condoning violence, where he's heard homophobic comments on the on the work site, and he'll go click his fingers and say, "Uh, uh-uh, not here, mate, not here," and pull people up, pull people up in the street, in the bar, whatever. And I think that's pretty cool. So why do you think homophobia has is such a thing in sport? I think it's gotten it's gotten much better. It really has. So when I in between me coming out to my father and me being on the back of the float, I, I came out on the front page of the Herald uh, in a column about Michael Kirby and how I saw him speak at the gay games and I wrote that column for a lot of reasons in two thousand and fourteen, thirteen, thirteen. Um <laughs> One, the same-sex marriage debate was doing my head in and I got so sick of people who weren't LGBT coming up with all these reasons why it shouldn't happen. So I thought, well, I'm going to write a column saying why it should. Benjamin Law came out and said something quite sort of big. He said something along the lines of he wanted to hate-fuck every politician who voted against the bill. Mm. That's how riled up he was about it. Is that how you felt? Oh, yeah. I was getting really, really shitty with it. I was really shitty about people telling me how I should live my life when it has no effect on them. And I just hated the way that the whole debate was turning into a freedom of speech debate where, no, it was actually about just equality. And that's what I was getting really, really angry about. And in that column I actually talked about David Pocock and how the, the Wallabies player, how he wasn't going to get married until, um, until same-sex marriage had been passed. I was just growing frustrated because and, and this is the thing though, Sav, it's like yeah, there's still elements of sport that's quite homophobic, but Jesus Christ it's come a long way. And when I wrote that column, I was overwhelmed with support from coaches, players, past and present. Um, you know, I was covering I was covering Derby Day down at Flemington the day that the column came out and the the response was overwhelming. I picked up a thousand uh, Twitter followers in about two hours. And the amount of and also before that, the amount of of sports people who had said to me they didn't care, who were really supportive and still are now, like just don't care, um, has been really, really encouraging. The re- the other reason why I did it though is because I was I was getting threatened by certain people about being outed publicly. Uh, you've been victim of of, of homophobic um, slurs. Do you want to talk about that text you received? From a guy called Eddie Hayson, who was a punter and a bad punter and a brothel owner who was in the middle of a big match-fixing investigation at the time, he sent me this filthy homophobic text one Sunday morning. And, look, I still get 
plenty of homophobic social media posts, um, uh, emails directly sent to me. I don't get them in the street like I used to. I, I have had one or two that I don't handle that well. I don't handle homophobia that well. I find it hard to... I, I, it's probably a product of my upbringing. I learned to fight for my stick up for myself, so... I find it hard to, to laugh it off, which is a which is a character flaw of mine. But when Eddie Hasten wrote me that text, and I went, you know what, buddy, I draw the line at you. I am not going to put it put up with it. He said he he made this ridiculous claim that the players are wary about me going into the change rooms. I don't know. Which <laughs> I don't know about you, Webby, but I reckon those players would, wouldn't mind having you there, just kind of but covering is, all their their bases. This is the stupid. This is the stupid thing. You haven't been able to go into a dressing room for years. So they bring them as out. a reporter. No, you don't go in there at all. It's like a, it's it's like a, san- a sacred sort of area. It's just because because there's so much media that cover footy these days, you can't all get in there. So they just bring them out. So you don't go into into a change room. So I knew it was all bullshit anyway. And, but I just went, you know what? A shit bag like that, I was just going to draw the line. I wasn't going to. I wasn't going to turn the other cheek. I wasn't going to fire something back. I was like, mate, you want to do it? You want to be gutless enough to send it in a text because you're, you're too gutless to say it publicly? Well, I'm going to shame you and I'm going to put it out publicly. Did you have to get permission from the editor? To, yeah. um, no. I, I I remember when I got it, I fired off the column and I sent it in, and I was actually waiting for them to say no or do you want to think about this again? And anyway, they ran it. They supported. Yeah, my 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 the Herald's always been very supportive of me when it comes to these type of issues because I've have to, sometimes I've got to write about it and it's sometimes it's hard. Like when I've had to write about the Israel Folau issue, when I've had to write about various sports backing the the same sex marriage laws, it's hard because it drifts into your personal life and then then opens you up to to criticism from readers saying, "Well, you're just writing about this because of your sexuality." I said, well, no, it's probably because I'm the chief sports writer of the Herald who happens to be gay. So that's why I probably, yeah, I do have a different perspective. But I'm writing about it because it's my job. It's also you're writing about it because you have a conscience. Exactly. Yeah. You're exactly. using that position to do something with it instead yeah. of letting it. Just it's always kind of marked like... opinion. You don't, if, if, take it or leave it. But yeah, I, I, the, the Falao debate wore me down, to be honest. It was really tricky because <clears throat> I actually, because I, I knew, I've known Israel since. From day one. Did you ever see any of this in his character from day one? I knew that he was very, very beholden to his family, first in terms of money and being the the breadwinner for an entire family, extended family. So I knew the importance of him to that from them in that regard, and that's why he left rugby league to go to um, AFL for a huge amount of money, to union for a huge amount of money, and then his attempts to come back to league for a huge amount of money. Um, but, and I also knew that they had a enormous influence, him, influence on him in terms of his religion. Yeah. And that's why I feel like he's been used up in many ways. And that's why I actually have a bit of empathy for him. How do you think he feels about this all, like... You think is, is I don't. I've, I've I've stopped trying to think what Israel Folau is thinking, but I've seen some of his sermons, and I've seen. I just. I see. I still see the shy kid that I knew as a seventeen-year-old who went to the Melbourne Storm, who we couldn't weren't allowed to interview because he was so young and shy, and but just very gifted. I don't think he would. I, I feel like he's been pushed into being a martyr, and I. I. I don't know whether he regrets that or not, but. 
Is, I do. I, I, I have a bit of empathy towards him. And, and the thing is, so I wrote a column about six months ago saying don't run a line through Israel for Lau forever. Let's have a discussion. That's the only way any anyone learns and grows. And I remember getting emails from readers saying I was homophobic. <laughs> wow. Yeah, people are dickheads. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. I'd like to move on to your third food memory, Webby. This is a bit of a personal favourite of mine, but the memory is yours. I'm not taking it away. Look at the pain in his face. The Maggie beer burnt fig ice cream. Shut up. Makes me want to be a better man. <laughs> As if that's possible. <laughs> As if it's possible. I used to love chocolate paddle Stop, pops. stop, 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 stop. What? You actually have to go back and tell us about the whole ice cream. So we take the lid off. We peel the paper off the top and then? And then the burnt fig is sort of like, it's just on the top, which is the richest part of it, which is the bit I love the, the most. And then you just like, and then I just always, I always buy, <laughs> so I buy it from King's Cross Harris Farms because I live in the cross. And I always buy it thinking that's what I'm going to have after I have dinner later that night. And I just actually just sit down and watch sport and just inhale it. The first time I tasted it was in a little tub on a flight in business class, Qantas business class flying from Sydney to Darwin for the Darwin Cup of all things. And I remember I got this little tub and I went, Maggie B, I know who that is. I've seen the TV shows. She's a nice lady. She's a nice lady. She She knows her food. She cooks. She goes all right. South Australia. (laughs) (laughs) And anyway, so I remember Enya going, my life has changed forever. Did you sometimes find that that caramel, that, that, that burnt caramel can sometimes, there'll be a lot at the top, but if you're really lucky and the machines get it wrong, there's actually a big chunk of it down oh, the bottom just, and it's never in the proportion it. to the ice cream. Oh, I know, I know. So now, and they don't make it in a big enough tub. No, not for people like us. But you, you know you can also get them like a like a ice cream, like a on a yeah, on a, on a, on a, on a Stick. Yeah, it's not the like same. Like it's a little magnum. I know, it's just not But it's the, not the same, is it? It's not the same as actually holding that cold tub in your hand. And I it's, love that got, ice cream. And your hands actually warm up the tub. So they do, they do. But see, and but she's got others. She's There's others that they she's got. They don't, they don't compare. They don't not compared to the burnt fig. But I also, the thing that I love, like I've always, like, so when I grew up, I was I always loved chocolate battle pops. Then I went to the almond magnum, which I still love, but nothing on this. Like this is like it's decadent. Yeah. So this ice cream takes you to your happy place. If I get overwhelmed with work and I want to eat my feelings, that's the that's the go-to. That's the go-to for sure. Like I write a lot of bloody words. I write a lot of words for the Herald. I've written seven books. I've do TV. I do radio. So I get. I don't know about you, Sav, but now that I'm a bit older, I actually prefer my own company. Like just sort of switching off. Well, I have two flatmates in the form of children, so oh, I, have, no. I have none of that, but I do. Yes, I do crave it. So I, this is what I do because we're in my flat now. I sit there on yeah. that lounge and I sit there and I watch. Beautiful view across the harbour. Beautiful view across the harbour. But, but I also have a thing for American football. So I, I'm sort of addicted to American football because I don't cover it. So that's sort of like my indulgence. So my two indulgences are... Maybe. Uh, uh, big, strapping American footballers in, <laughs> in, in tight pants in as I eat Maggie Beer burnt feet ice cream. <laughs> what a, talk about living your best possible life. Ice cream and watch 
American footballers in tight tights. Do you put a lot of responsibility on that written word that's being published? Does that does that and does that kind of my very when I started as a cadet at the Maitland Mercury newspaper in the Hunter Valley, and my very first old mentor Wayne Carey, who's who, who's no longer with us, he said always rem- always remember son that you're going to have to see the person that you've written about in the street, and you know, look them in the eye and be comfortable with what you've written. And I've always been, I've always tried to live up to that. Webby, you say that sometimes you're not a strong fella. But I, you've just displayed so many moments of strength and and uh, and endurance, and you you actually know what you have to do for your community. I think that's actually quite marvelous. Thank you. Just before we move on to your social justice um, cause, I want to ask you something. Um, the major sports codes have identified the importance of women in sport. Why do you think it's taken so long? <sighs> because sport particularly in this country, is usually about 20 years behind the rest of society, I find. And you've probably seen it lately with the Tim Payne saga, the Australian captain who sent those sexual messages to a a staffer at Cricket Tasmania. What part of the Cricket Australia administration thought that that would be okay to still make him the captain of the team after he had done that? And to me, that just showed you how far behind they are. Anyway, that's a long way of saying that sports, the major codes, have not appreciated the importance of women's sport. In the last few years, since since soccer and cricket discovered that there was money to be made from it, they've all clambered on board to get their slice of the pie. And I think that's a good thing. They've all recognised that the value of women's sport and that people actually want it and the, the, the value of, of those those sports people. I remember I covered at the Rio Olympics the women's sevens rugby team and when they won gold and you could see this new sport just blossoming before your eyes. And they are athletes. They are absolute weapons, those girls. Um, so, yeah, it's it's good. It's, it's, really, it's really encouraging to see that um, the, men, the men's sports have the men's the the men's sports are sharing uh, time and time and and money with women's sports. And what will be the future? Do you think of women's sports? Like it's only going to get stronger. It really will. I think COVID has knocked around a lot of the major sports in terms of the bottom line, and they've tried to snip um, <clears throat> women's sports to try and make up for the shortfall. And there was such a backlash in many ways that they and they couldn't. And I, to me, that said a lot. That, that they couldn't they couldn't cut corners on women's sport any longer. So it's only going to get stronger and better. And now for your social justice cause that you'd like to draw our attention to today. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Wayside Chapel in the Cross, where I've been a volunteer for about eight years. Um, <clears throat> I love Wayside. My best relationships, my most authentic relationships have always come out of Wayside, whether they're the visitors that are there, the staff that are there, or the other volunteers that are there, that's that's probably my happy place as well, where I don't eat burnt fig ice cream. <laughs> ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> but I love Wayside. It's a very, very special place. It's an institution. It's been there since Ted Knoff's discovered it and founded it in the, uh, in the 60s. And it plays a really important role for the homeless people of this of this city and, and particularly this area. So, and what, and what do you think we can do? Donate clothes, donate money. They only people think that they get a huge handout off the government. They do not. 
they raise all the money themselves. So the more that people can donate in terms of in terms of clothes, emergency clothing, or to the op shop for stuff that can be sold or cash donations, the better. Webby, thank you so much. Thanks, Sev. Thank you so much for listening to Plated Three Food Memories. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about it, online or in person. You can also subscribe, rate it, and write a review. Bye for now.